Want to learn the ins and outs of the film industry from the experts? Hoping to hone your craft? Come to Terminus. Terminus Conference and Festival is a one-of-a-kind event for emerging creatives in film and gaming. It's held June 22nd through the 25th in Atlanta, Georgia, and is perfect for filmmakers, writers, and fans looking to grow their careers while also having some fun. Explore educational workshops in all aspects of filmmaking, networking opportunities, film screenings, parties, and more. Best of all, our listeners can get 25% off all access badges by using code RINGER, all one word in lowercase at checkout. Visit TerminusEvent.com for more information. Hello and welcome to The Big Picture, a Channel 33 Movies podcast. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer. This show has a podcast name, finally, and I'm going to continue doing it. Apologies to failed nominee titles. Above the title, Nobody Knows Anything, and my personal favorite, You'll Never Podcast in This Town Again. So we do have a name. We are going to be doing this in the future. I'm very excited about that. And today, on The Big Picture, I'll be talking with the Australian filmmaker David Michaud, who's made movies like Animal Kingdom, The Rover, and Netflix's latest original film, War Machine, which stars Brad Pitt. But first, I'm joined by Matthew Bellany, editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter, Matt, thank you so much for being here with me today. No problem. So, Matt, help us understand what's happening at Cannes right now related to Netflix. There was a little bit of controversy before last weekend, and um, what what exactly is happening right now? All right, so Netflix is in the middle of this you know giant industry issue of windowing, and windowing is super boring. It sounds really awful, but it's actually the most important issue in Hollywood because it determines when. People can see movies and TV shows and for how much. So when you click on a a movie on Netflix that you want to watch, you say, oh, click. But what you don't realize is that there's been three years of negotiation that leads to the fact that you can click and watch on that. And Netflix submitted a couple films to the Cannes Film Festival and got accepted. Um, There's this film, Okja, which is by a South Korean filmmaker. And then um, they had another film that that they've they've been promoting as well, the, the Noah Baumbach film. But... They got in, and then there was an outcry in France because Netflix films do not go to theaters before they go to Netflix. That's a big difference between what Amazon does, which Amazon partners with theatrical distributors to put movies in theaters like Manchester by the Sea, which you could see in theaters for a couple months. Then it goes to Amazon Prime. Netflix wants everything to be on Netflix the day that it could be available in theaters. And they offer them to theaters, but most theater chains won't show it because it's on Netflix. So... They found themselves in this big controversy, and the Cannes Film Festival essentially reversed itself and said, oh, we'll let you in this year, but from now on, no Netflix films in competition in Cannes because you don't honor that theatrical window. And that's a big deal. Yeah, so Pedro Almodovar, who is uh, heading up the jury at Cannes this year, went on the record and said that he would not be giving the palm door to Bong Joon-ho's film Okja, which is is controversial. And then Will Smith, who has a Netflix film of his own coming later this year, went in the other direction and said that Netflix is sort of like the future of viewing for people, that his kids watch all of their content on Netflix. Tell me what it's like in Hollywood and what the reaction is to something like this. You know, later I'm talking to David Michaud on this show. He has a film, War Machine, with Brad Pitt. Is there anxiety amongst people, you know, at the studios versus the, some of the choices that Netflix has been making in the last few years? I think Netflix is the single biggest topic of discussion in Hollywood right now because of the reason you just said. Everybody has an opinion. The fact that this Memorial Day weekend uh, you can go to a theater and pay $15 and see Johnny Depp 
Or you can stay home and watch Brad Pitt, arguably a bigger star, in a movie on Netflix. That scares the crap out of Hollywood because the movie, you know, they first did it to the TV industry with House of Cards and Orange is the New Black and, you know, 13 Reasons Why and all of these shows that were professional, high quality, A-list Emmy-winning shows that are not on TV, they're on the internet. And that was fine. It's a big buyer, and people like to watch TV at home. But now Netflix is doing that to movies. And they're doing it with big stars. Will Smith, Brad Pitt. They're spending the kind of money that a studio, a major studio, would, would spend. The Brad Pitt movie, War Machine, probably costs $80, $90 million. That's the, the budget of a big Hollywood movie, and it's on Netflix, and it's competing with these movies that are in theaters. And it'll be very interesting to see the Memorial Day weekend box office when you have this kind of A-list star on Netflix, that is something that scares the crap out of Hollywood. So this is an interesting thing. I'm curious to see if Netflix sticks with this plan and continues to make big budget films, or if they're still in this period where they are trying to essentially keep an eye on stock price, grow the amount of people that subscribe to their service. And so they're throwing big money at, you know, we've seen Adam Sandler now, and we've seen Will Smith, we've seen Brad Pitt. These are huge, massive movie stars. Do you think five years from now, Netflix will still be making films with big top stars, or will they be doing things sort of in their own way and trying to create stars of their own? I think that's a great question, because what you've seen is Netflix trying to spend their way into becoming a player. They are solely focused on those subscriber numbers, and they want to get those subscribers up over 100 million and keep growing and growing and growing. And to do that, they say they're going to spend $6 billion on content in a year, in just this year. That is an insane number. That's, I mean, to put it in perspective, it's, it's two to three times what HBO spends. It's, you know, it's just gigantic on what they're, they're spending. Um, is that sustainable? Who knows? The stock price is doing pretty well. But in three years, will investors still be into this whole idea of spend, spend, spend? Um, what they've also done is they have changed the equation of the economics of Hollywood. Um, now, the price to get a hot TV show has gone up because Netflix is willing to overpay because they're trying to build subscribers. And you hear it all the time around the other networks. Oh, we got to compete with Netflix. Netflix is spending X, Y, Z. Amazon is also doing the same. They have a slightly different model with movies where they put movies in theaters as well as on Amazon Prime. And that has been popular with filmmakers. They've been able to get movies like Manchester by the Sea, which got them two Oscars, mm -hmm. which is a big deal. I mean, in the arm race between Amazon and Netflix, Amazon got to the Oscars first. They won two major category Oscars, Best Actor and Screenplay for Manchester by the Sea. Netflix is yet to get there. But in the overall ecosystem, I think Netflix has been a more impactful player just because of the traction that their projects get. Everybody talks about shows on Netflix. When this Brad Pitt movie comes out, I have a feeling everybody's going to be talking about it. And it's just them trying to spend their way into relevance. And so far, it's working. One thing I'm interested in, I have a lot of filmmakers in here, a lot of them talk about the creative freedom that a place like Netflix mm -hmm. provides. There's not, you don't, the notes that you get, say if you make a show for a network or if that you're working in, you know, for a big studio like Universal or like Fox, David Michaud got to make exactly the movie he wanted to make, regardless of the quality of that movie. And that obviously draws talent, but one thing that has been on my mind is when will we know when Netflix has made a truly great film, a masterpiece? You know, there's word of mouth and then there's sort of the industry understanding. So you, as somebody who works at The Hollywood Reporter, helps dictate some of the tone of the industry. Will it be clear to you when the next 
classic American film that appears on Netflix arrives, or is there going to be this unpacking period? I think there's a gauge of that, at least in the industry, and that gauge is awards. And that's why Netflix and Amazon have so aggressively chased awards. The arrival moment for Netflix in Hollywood wasn't when House of Cards premiered. It was when House of Cards was nominated for Emmys. Mm. And what that signaled to the industry was we're, we're serious and we can play in this game just like HBO, just like all the other networks. Similar to 15 years ago when The Sopranos started getting Emmy nominations and so everyone said, wow, okay, HBO can produce the quality shows and we need to have original content on HBO. And if I'm X movie star or, or TV star, I want to be on HBO. And HBO's entire model for the past 15 years has been about that announcement they make every year that they are the most nominated network for the Emmys. Mm -hmm. So when Netflix cracks through and wins Best Picture, that will be the moment that the industry says, okay, this is where you go to make a quality film. Because what filmmakers like more than anything, more than money even, if you could argue, they want to see that film on a big screen. And they want to experience it. And you don't get that with Netflix for the most part. They do offer, you know, in small theaters for awards consideration and other things like that. But most, you know, nearly everyone who experiences these films for Netflix experiences them on their screen. And some filmmakers don't like that. You know, Christopher Nolan has come out and said he doesn't, he's not, a, he's not a fan of that. He wants people to take in his movies as an experience. Um, but, but I think that that's going to change because, like you said, Will Smith's kids don't care about theaters. And, you know, anyone under 20, 25, 30 who grows up watching content on their phones or wherever, they're used to that. And they don't have that same uh, affinity for the, the movie theater experience for, for most movies. Some, you know, if you want to see Wonder Woman or you want to see whatever, you know, big blockbuster, you probably want to see it in a big theater. But Netflix is going to have a niche and they're going to make an impact there. Cast this forward again. Five years from now, do you mm -hmm. think it's plausible that half of the Best Picture nominees are Netflix and Amazon properties? That's totally plausible. So what will that mean for studios then? Will that mean they will lean more deeply into the Wonder Womans, the blockbusters of the world? Or will they try to experiment and create streaming services of their own? How do you see that playing out? First of all, you're already seeing the studios leaning into the Wonder Woman. The most successful studio in Hollywood right now is Disney, and they're successful because they have Star Wars. They have Pixar and Disney animation movies. They're remaking all their old animated movies as big movies like Beauty and the Beast and Jungle Book. That's their model because Marvel. they know... What? Marvel. Marvel as well, and Pirates of the Caribbean. What they're doing is they're, they're, they know that the, the studio um, release business model is moving towards these franchises. And frankly, a lot of these Netflix and Amazon movies that are getting picked up are movies that the studios would be hesitant to make on their own. Brad Pitt's War Machine, that floated around. That was, that was available to studios, and there was a lot of hesitation to do a very, um, you know, kind of in, in biting satire at a price of $80 million even if it stars Brad Pitt. That's still a risk for, for a big studio. They're looking to make big tentpole blockbuster movies, and then they want to take a few chances on the kind of movies that are smaller budgeted that can win awards. That's the model. So 
in comes Netflix, in comes Amazon, and they're willing to take a chance on these things because they're trying to establish themselves as a place where movie stars can go and directors can feel comfortable. And Brad Pitt can make that $80 million satire he wants to make. So we've heard in the past about TV showrunners and also their agents being slightly concerned about not getting data about viewership Mm -hmm. on shows on Netflix. Do you think that there will be a similar frustration or concern from filmmakers, say, two or three years down the line when we don't quite know how many people saw War Machine or Bright? I think so. I mean, money can assuage a lot of those concerns. You know, Adam Sandler uh, has been has had a Netflix relationship for a few years now. Those movies kind of come and go and they're on Netflix and then, you know, but it's interesting, you know, he's being paid very well for that. And it's also interesting that Netflix recently announced that the Adam Sandler movies were their most popular things on Netflix. I have a feeling that's because Adam Sandler wanted people to know that because he misses those box office numbers coming in. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they say about War Machine and Bright, the Will Smith movie, and a couple of other things that they go on there. Netflix kind of dribs and drabs that information where it sees it's it beneficial. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that, that, that Adam Sandler wanted people to know that he was still loved. This was very insightful, Matt. Thank you for chatting with me about it today. No problem. All right. Thanks to Matt Bellany from The Hollywood Reporter. Coming up, we'll talk with director David Michaud about Netflix and his movie War Machine. But first, a few words from our sponsors. Clothes are important. Mark my words. And finding a dress shirt that fits is very hard. I'm wearing one right now. It fits okay, but not great. Here's what you need to do. Whether the collar is too tight or the sleeves are too long, there's something that is always off and there is a solution. Luckily, ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier thanks to Proper Cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds just by answering 10 easy questions. It's a foolproof process. You don't even need measuring tape. Plus, Proper Cloth has over 500 fabric styles to choose from, including premium Italian and Japanese fabrics, as well as business and casual styles, all starting at just $85. And best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. No wonder Proper Cloth is the highest rated custom shirt maker on Google. Even GQ calls them their favorite online custom shirt maker. This is the future of shirts. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best with a custom fitted shirt. Go to propercloth.com backslash movie today. Enter gift code movie to save $20 on your first shirt. Do it today. I'm very lucky to be joined today by David Michaud, who has a new film, War Machine, coming out on Netflix, May 26th. It's very exciting. David, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. David, this is um, a very interesting movie. We were just talking before we started taping about what it's like to talk about what's going on in the real world related to the movie that you made. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What is going on in the real world and how does that relate to your movie? I mean, what, what I was saying to you before was that uh you know in a way it's there's something gratifying for me about talking you know this is my third movie now and so I'm doing like a press another press tour and I always like talking about the movies because it always feels like a beautiful last stage in the process for me it always I actually like talking about the movie because the movie comes alive for me in in a different way when I'm talking to other people about it this one feels slightly different though and it feels like I'm getting to also talk about stuff that's just important, you know, which is about the fact that that we uh, we seem to be at perpetual war now uh, with, with no clear end in sight. 
there, there can so often be, you know, I can so often feel like there's something, you know, I feel like just a, like a, a kitty in a sand pit, you know, with Play-Doh and, and blah, blah, blah when you're making movies, you know. It's just like, uh, I mean, they're, they're so, so important to me and yet I kind of know that it's like I'm lucky because I just get to play for a living. It's nice when it has that extra dimension. Yeah. yeah, so your first two films, Animal Kingdom and The Rover, are fairly self-contained stories, and this obviously is about something that is happening in the in, in the, the wider world. world. Yeah, how how does that happen? Dee Dee Garner and and Brad Pitt come to you with Michael Hastings' book, The Operators, right? Yeah. Why did they come to you? What did they say to you? Uh, I don't. I'm. I don't know. I can't answer for them why they came to me. One of the things I love about those guys is that they've been talking to me for years. You know, they were. They, they're like the only people in Hollywood who've been talking to me since before I even made Animal Kingdom. How, how, how did they become aware of you? They saw a couple of short films that I'd made and they sought me out. And we, we were having conversations even back then about trying to put you know, a movie together or finding ways of working with each other and it didn't happen. But we stayed in contact and, we, and they, they would regularly send me books or you know, uh, materials of various kinds and it was this was the one that landed because it happened to coincide with me looking for a way into a movie that might be set in one of these contemporary theaters of war and michael's book gave me that way in before you got that book were there other kinds of war stories that you were working on writing or that you were trying to engage with i hadn't started writing anything but i'd been reading a lot and i had assumed given the nature of my first two movies that my version of a war movie would probably be something about something sad and poetic and and brutal you know about the horrors of the battlefield for some reason or other i was resisting the stories that resisting the 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 kernels of the stories that were presenting themselves you know i think it was in part because I, would, I didn't know that I wanted to subject myself to the horrors of actually making those movies, but also because I felt like I, that's what all modern war movies are these days. You know, they are strangely cloistered little movies about, you know, the honour or the, the trauma. They're often very grim. And almost always, you know, with maybe one or two exceptions, coming from a place of quite of noble intention, you know, of, of seeing the, the men and women that fight for us as, as victims of war. What, what Michael's book presented me with was a larger story to tell, and one that would be about that. It was always important to me that, that the movie some, in some way or other ultimately become about the horror and sadness of war. But it needed to be about something else too, it, and it needed to be it needed to be uh, a movie that asked questions of the the larger machine that scrutinized the architects of that horror and sadness. You know, we don't ask questions of these people. The military has become this institution that we all treat with just great deference now across the board when you know the military is a gigantic organization has all different kinds of personalities in it and there are certain parts of that organization that i think need to be held to uh to account it it won't come to as a surprise to listeners at this point that to hear that you're from australia so i'm curious what it's like as an australian to observe conflict in the middle east you know from talking to u.s citizens or you know, British citizens, does it seem like the observation is the same or do you have a different kind of perspective because of where you're from? 
I, you know, I feel like I'm in the, I'm an incredibly privileged position here and that, yes, there, I feel like an outsider. I don't, I actually don't believe that this movie couldn't have been made by an American because I think one of the defining features of our contemporary re- relationship, social relationship with our military is a kind of detachment, you know. Unlike, say, back in the days of World War II when the military and the social fabric were all part of one thing, I think we're all, you know, for the most part, well, the, most of us, I should say, are looking at the military from the outside. You know, and maybe being an Australian, I've got another whole ocean's worth of distance away. Having said all of this, all of this stuff feels completely, uh, completely relevant to me as an Australian because we're there. We have been. I think we're. I think we're actually the only, the only Western nation that has fought side by side with the United States in every major conflict since World War One. You know, it's. Uh, we were there in Korea. We were there in Vietnam. We were there in all of these Middle Eastern engagements. Uh, we're still there, and I think you know there's there is talk now of another troop surge into Afghanistan, and I think our government has been asked to contribute to that surge. This movie feels as much about my country's military as it is about uh, about yours. So there's something interesting, some choices that you make in the movie to sort of create a fictionalized version of a very true reported book. Um, I'm curious how you landed on inventing a character and inventing a world that reflects what happened but doesn't strictly recreate it. Uh, there are certain parallels that can be drawn between this movie in a way and my experience on my first movie, Animal Kingdom, in that that movie was also, it was kind of very loosely based on or inspired by a, a real event in Melbourne's criminal history and a kind of very loosely uh, inspired by a, a particular criminal family. You know, the first point of departure always is just I want I want wiggle room, you know. I want to feel like I can uh, engineer my own characters from the ground up. And, you know, I, I had no interest in with this movie in doing a kind of... I had no interest in making a Stan McChrystal biopic. I had no interest in doing a hatchet job on Stan McChrystal. You know, it's, for me, this movie isn't about an individual, uh, a real-life individual or a, a real-life group of guys. It's about an entire system. You know, I, I wanted to make a movie about all the various, the different different layers of the military, the ways that they interact with one another. I, and Brad and I knew from the outset that we wanted a, you know, our way of, of addressing the kind of the strange disconnection between these various layers was to treat the top of it as like, like an absurd circus and the bottom as a, a horror show. To make that absurd circus ring true, we wanted, we knew we wanted to create a character that was going to be big, you know, yes. that was that was going to play like, you know, this guy had had let his inner World War Two general come to the surface, you know. So was it always going to be Brad as the star of whatever you guys collaborated on? Jeremy and Didi brought the book to me, you know, in the hope that I would be writing something for Brad to play. But, you know, in, in the absence of a script, you never know if that's actually how it's going to pan out. Uh, it, was, it, was just very, it was just exciting that, you know, he, when, when I first delivered him a draft of a script, he was, I mean, it, re- it felt like he just put everything aside and said, I want to make this movie and I want to make it now. You know? 
How so? He's made some very specific choices in the movie. His accent, the way that he runs. You know, it's a very physical performance. How much of that is in the script? How much do you, of that do you guys talk about beforehand, or does he just show up to the set and say, "It's it's me, it's McMahon." No, we talk. You know, I mean, the, I think the the basic building blocks of it are in the script. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we we knew we wanted to make something that was kind of wild, um, it, even from our first conversations. You know, Brad is a uh, one of the things that makes him a great actor is that he, like all great actors, understands that the that a performance or the, the building of a character is about a collaboration between an actor and a director. All of the minutiae of that performance is, you know, stuff of his invention. You know, mm-hmm. it's why you just, you know, 90% of my job is just getting the right people in the room. But we, our conversations become about how, where do we pitch this and... and Was there any ideas that he had that were too far or didn't quite work or, you know, did he want to have a strange mustache or something like that? Not that I recall. I mean, in part, you know, when we made the decision to to make the movie be about a kind of, a, be about disconnection, to be about, to, to feel tonally schizophrenic, you know, f- for it to be quite clear that there was some dangerous remove from the hubris of the executive level. To make that scene, we decided to go big and it was just really, for me, about letting him off the leash. You know, in a way, I, I didn't just want to make a movie about the madness of war. I wanted to make a movie that actually felt mad. Mm-hmm. You know? um, in terms of his performance, there was no such thing as too big. Mm-hmm. It meant that it just it just presented challenges for me in the edit, not to try and alter his performance in any way, but to just make sure that the movie felt like a whole thing. What was that like for you? Your first two films have a very serious tone. They're approached very seriously. There's pure comedy in this movie. There's satire. Like, was it was it fun to be changing that up? Obviously, all the stuff on the ground with the, the, mm. the execution of the war is fairly serious. But was it good to be in a room with nine actors and just kind of be reeling? Yeah, there's just a there's just a joy to be had in 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 watching great actors bring your writing to life. You know, uh, I, I experienced the you know my experience on set is one of sheer terror. You know, it's you're living on adrenaline constantly in fear of each new day being the one that that undoes you, you what, what are you afraid is going to happen what, what how could it come apart well that i'm going to discover that a scene is just bad mm. or that something about its execution isn't working i mean it's always it's i enjoy the adrenaline of it and that you you know it's every every it's not even just that every day it's that every scene is kind of the same for me and that you walk onto set you uh you bring the actors on they're moving at half pace. They're in only in half wardrobe. You you know you block it out and you and you run it through and it just feels dead always. And then you've got then you send them off to get hair and makeup done or whatever and lighting tweaks and I've got forty five minutes to work out how to fix it. You know, or not even that. Sometimes just twenty minutes or whatever. I love that part of the process. I can just feel my brain firing on all cylinders and uh and it and it feels creative what do you do how do you adrenalize it like that i I don't choose to (laughs) but but how can you convey to everybody else on the set that you have you're thrusting the energy into it you know you're you're making you're putting some urgency on making the scene work it's uh it's just it's an imperative that's all it is you know it's just like i don't want this scene to be the one that lets the movie down uh 
And then you do that for, you know, whatever. It's like first movie was 35 days, second was 42, this one was 55. And then you just do that every day until you stop and then you collapse and you get the flu and then uh, walk into an edit room for the whole, that whole horror show, you know. What, um, I, I've had a lot of filmmakers here, especially those who have worked with Netflix, they've all said that it is the most um, easygoing creative experience, that they are very helpful and that they support the vision. Is that also true for you? Yeah. I mean, I feel so lucky that that window opened for me at this time. When, I'm, when my first movie was released, um, uh, it was such a like a... a and a, such a special moment for me because uh, it was received so well and it did well for me. And I felt like I had an like, enormous number of opportunities suddenly opening up for me, but I didn't know where the outlet was for the kind of movie that I would want to make. You know, I felt like I'd arrived 10 years too late, you know, that all of those, all of the specialty divisions of the studios had closed down pretty much and, and, interesting filmmakers weren't getting to make their interesting movies with with good budgets anymore and um was that just something in your head or was that manifest in even the conversations you were having after the success of animal kingdom uh it was partly just you know the observations i was making of the movies that were out there mm-hmm. uh you know i mean movies it, you know the writing of them developing of them it's like i didn't want to start head off you know naively and blindly down roads that I knew would turn out to be dead ends. You know, I didn't want to start writing a movie that I just by looking around could see was probably unmakeable. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you consider going to one of the big Hollywood studios and trying to do a project like that? I mean, you've now worked with A24 and Netflix, which are sort of two poles of yeah. creatively supported um, filmmaker homes. So was there a different, an alternate universe where you made a movie at Sony? Yeah, there might have been. I mean, I actually remember straight after Animal Kingdom, I did a the kind of development deal with DreamWorks and uh, and nothing ever came of it. I mean, I really liked the conversations I had with them and we were looking for something to do together, but uh, it just never happened. You know, and yeah, I was kind of, I was, you know, my observations also of the landscape were such that I could see that even if I did find a way of making a film at one of the big studios that, seeing the kinds of movies that they were making and the ones that were working and not working and and how that was all kind of manifesting as risk aversion i was wary of getting myself into a relationship that i would experience as painful you know and that was you know this all leading to where i am now and suddenly this this beautiful opportunity opened up for me at netflix where it was like oh this is the way i get to make the kind of movie, something something str- unusual, bold, tonally ambitious, and that kind of stuff, but with a with a budget. You know, there was really no way of making this movie cheaply, and I, I was just lucky that those guys were incredibly supportive and 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 encouraging of the risk taking. How much do you think about how many people are going to see what you're making? Because obviously, a lot of people go to the studio films because they want an audience. They want to feel like people are engaging. Obviously, Netflix presents a different kind of reach but a pretty massive reach is that something on your mind i i wouldn't say that i've ever not wanted to find you know have an like an audience i want you know i'd like everyone to watch uh, everything i've ever made i don't know how they they will receive those things you know but uh 
that never really it never enters my thinking you know it's like I, I I think I would lose control of what I was even trying to do if I started thinking about the that 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 unknown citizen X that I was making the movie for that wasn't me you know the guiding principle for me has to be make the movie that I would want to see and be honest with myself about what that is what do you what is your line on the film-going experience versus the streaming situation that your film will be delivered in? You know, do you, is there any part of you that regrets that or misses that? Or how, how do you reconcile that? Uh, I choose not to. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 if I'm come to be completely honest, the Netflix model pretty accurately represents how I watch movies these days. You know, I like watching movies at home. I've got a... I actually don't have a good TV. But even with a bad TV, I still like watching movies at home. We're in such a strange transitional phase at the moment. You know, it's like what, watching all this stuff unfold between Netflix and Cannes, the, the opening and the closing of release windows and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's clear to me that, okay, something, there will be some r- radical shift, seismic shift in the landscape in the months and years to come. Yeah, the where where it will land, I'm not entirely sure, but I'd like to believe on some level that it can, even if it's only, even if that experience of going to the theatre to see a movie becomes not just a fifteen bucks in your in your tracksuit pants just because you got nothing else to do, but it actually becomes a special experience, you know, that you that you experience it that way. Maybe that's what the future holds. Yeah, the can situation right now strikes me as kind of a birthing pain for something that is going to come in the future do you feel like you are on a, you know, the right side of history in some way by doing this or is it just sort of a matter of circumstance that this was a great opportunity to make this film with this company and with brad and plan b oh no it felt like we knew that what we were doing that it was a i mean not because of me it was actually largely because of brad you know brad going to netflix was a big deal mm-hmm but we loved the idea of it. We knew from the outset that we were making a film that felt kind of in the current climate, in the current uh, cinema climate, felt bold and anti-establishment. It's been really interesting for me how I feel like piracy, for instance, hasn't entered any of the conversations that I've been having. It's almost as if Netflix has, the advent of Netflix has kind of on a certain level rendered that conversation redundant because they address the very thing that people have always been saying is the cause of piracy which is giving people the ability to watch the movie when they want to watch it you know that's right. here it is straight away you can have it now you don't have to steal it you know yeah that's very interesting so given some of the um secrecy around viewership data and things like that how do you define success for a movie like this aside from just personally feeling satisfied and proud of what you've made the opinions of you know even just a small group of people whose whose opinions I respect, you know. I mean, that's all it's ever really been for me. If I, mm-hmm. I feel like if I'm out there like trying to chase a number, uh, I'll I'll go nuts. I know when I feel like I've tapped into something that is landing with people who are important to me, and I'm not being, and they're not lying to me when they <laughs> say they like it. You know, is that happening often? Well, you know what it's like. No one deep down, I think humans are good. You know, they don't like to hurt other people's feelings. Is that? I don't know if that's the message of the movie, though. <laughs> I I think it might be. Really? Well, I think you know. I certainly think Brad's character is. I I've, I think I feel like it was very important to me that I not paint him out to be an evil guy. That, you know, sure. That he is. 
his intentions are true. He's just delusional. It feels like the know? pride comes before the good, though. You know, the, the, the self-delusion comes before the good. Yeah. I'm not saying we're all good. Okay. I just think we're kind of good. Funda- <laughs> fundamentally. Let's, uh, I always like to wrap by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing they've seen? You said you watch a lot of films at home these days. Have you seen anything recently that blew your wig back? Oh, God. Oh, I hate this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, in part because you've, you're asking the wrong guy. I hate everything. I'm that bad. And I'm, I even annoy myself now because I do, you know. Because you just, do you see the flaws in things or the, what you would, is it what you would have done with something or? No, it's never what I would have done. It's always, I just always feel so relentlessly underwhelmed and I don't know why. I want that joy back though, you know. It's like the whole reason I make movies is because, I just remember those experiences I had when I was young of watching, of watching of those movies that made me feel like I was having some kind of spiritual experience. You know, I mean, I, I that's the juice. You know, why is that gone? Well, I think in part because of the stuff I'm talking about. You know, it's like the studios aren't making these movies anymore. This experience that I've had getting to, you know, whether or not I've succeeded in making something that fits that bill mm-hmm. remains to be seen, but. Certainly, it felt like a big deal that Netflix were making this movie. I mean, it was, it felt a little bit game changey. You mm-hmm. know, there, there hardly anyone's going to, you know, it's like Paul Thomas Anderson's getting to release, he'll release another movie at the end of this year. I'm excited about that. But there aren't many people who are still getting to, to you know, make those movies that blow me away. I, this is terrible. I can't stand that I'm even saying this. And I know the second this interview ends, I'm going to walk away and then think of five <laughs> things I've seen recently that I actually thought were really good. We might have to jump back on Mike so we don't have the first ever decline to this question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no comment. <laughs> okay, well, David, thank you very much for being here, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Something is always off when it comes to dress shirts. Luckily, ordering a custom-fit shirt has never been easier thanks to Proper Cloth. And they guarantee a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Go to propercloth.com backslash movie today. Enter gift code movie to save $20 on your first shirt.